On a Wednesday morning in early March at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, excited elementary school students on field trips file past a T-Rex skeleton in the entryway. Their voices echo through the halls as they make their way through the gem rooms, the dioramas, the mummies, and of course, prehistoric journey, the award-winning dinosaur wing of the museum. The main attraction of prehistoric journey is a cavernous room filled with fossils of the most impressive dinosaur specimens in the museum's collection. In the center, anchoring the space, there's a scene that could be straight out of Jurassic Park. A stegosaurus skeleton with its tiny head and heart-shaped spines swings its spiked tail at the bones of what looks like a T-Rex. But this isn't a T-Rex, it's an Allosaurus, an equally impressive carnivorous dinosaur that predates T-Rex by about 40 million years. Open-jawed, the Allosaurus lunges for the stegosaurus's neck with its sharp finger-length teeth. A plaque in front of the display describes the scene. It also bears a small black and white photo. In it, a girl with curly brown hair and a fedora and blue jeans kneels in the dirt amidst rocks and bone fragments. Her name is India Wood. As it turns out, she's something of a legend here at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Volunteer docent Paige Brown explains. Oh, on the Allosaurus, it tells you right there where those little girls are. It's a 13-year-old girl, but she was visiting her uncle's ranch for the summer, found a bone, took it home with her in the winter for school, and then came back the next summer and found, went back to the site and found what she thought was another bone, and it may well be. Then they called the museum in, and they excavated it. India Wood is credited with discovering the Allosaurus on display here. And as Paige tells us, her story is as much part of the exhibit as the skeleton itself. It's a great story to tell the kids, she says. A story of how a curious kid like them can make a difference in the very adult realm of scientific exploration. She admits that she doesn't know much more about India's story than what she told us. India Wood is the reason we're here at the museum today. And unbeknownst to Paige, or to any of the kids gawking at the dinosaur bones, India, the girl in the photo, now 50 years old, is in the room. Well, interestingly enough, she's standing right over there. <laughs> That's the woman that found it? Yeah. Oh, I want to shake your Hi, hand. Hi, I'm India. I talk about you every Saturday and Wednesday. So, well. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we point to your picture and we make jokes about how it took a 13-year-old girl to find this, or a 12-year-old girl, and not the rich pa paleontologist. <laughs> Aww. Yeah, I, I even Googled you and couldn't find you anyplace. <laughs> Oh, just look up India Wood Allosaurus. You'll find stuff. If you Google India Wood Allosaurus, the first thing you'll find is a 1984 article from People magazine. And it reads like the fantasy of every dinosaur-obsessed kid in the world. A 12-year-old girl single-handedly discovers and digs up an amazing carnivorous dinosaur specimen. The bones will go on display in the Natural History Museum. A life of adventure and fame awaits. From KRCC in Colorado Springs, this is Wish We Were Here, Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode, we bring you the story behind a legend. Yes, it's about a 12-year-old girl who made an incredible discovery. And yes, the bones are now on display at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Almost all of it is true, but the legend isn't the whole story. There's this whole mythology that's hilarious. And yeah, I'll hear museum volunteers, you know, giving my life story, and I'm like, I'll be saying to myself, but that's not right, that's not true. <laughs> but it sounds much better. They tell very good stories. The story, 
The whole story of India's discovery is maybe more unbelievable than the myth that's evolved at the museum over the last 30 years. Born in 1966, India Wood was raised in Colorado Springs by local art royalty. Both of my parents were crazy artists. Uh, my father, Myron Wood, was a fairly well-known photographer. Uh, he photographed Colorado and New Mexico extensively. Myron Wood is best known for his iconic portraits of the artist Georgia O'Keeffe at her home in Abiquiu, New Mexico. My mother, Nancy Wood, was a writer. She wrote about 30 different books. Nancy Wood's books, photography, and popular poetry explore native cultures, spirituality, and the human relationship to nature in the West. Her most famous work is a book of poems called Many Winters. It's sold over 100,000 copies since it was first published in 1974. So I grew up in a house that probably wasn't very normal. Um, and I think that probably had a lot to do with thinking that digging up a dinosaur was you know, just something you could do. Myron and Nancy Wood divorced when India was three years old. She remained close with her father, but lived mainly with her mom, who suffered from manic depression. Nancy Wood's work took her all over the Southwest for research and writer's retreats, sometimes at the homes of friends. Oftentimes, this meant India had to tag along. After my father left my mother when I was three, uh, we had no money. So mother would look for vacation opportunities at friends' places. Uh, and the ranch up in Northwest Colorado was one of those places. It was a free vacation. That ranch and the many free vacations that her family took there would become the backbone of India's early life. Managed by a salt-of-the-earth cowboy couple named Minford and Judy Beard, the ranch epitomized everything Nancy Wood mythologized about the West in her books. A free, spiritual relationship to untamed land, wild horses, and radical self-sufficiency. Here's an excerpt from a 1976 Bill Moyers documentary called The Cowboys, which featured Judy and Minford, the ranch they managed, and the fast-fading culture of the Colorado cowboy. I'm Bill Moyers. Here in the northwestern corner of Colorado, among these rocky hills, sagebrush flats, and dry gulches, I've met some people who live about as close to the frontier as you can in the last part of the 20th century. They're cowboys. Not the quick-drawing, fast-shooting, guitar-strumming cowboys of popular literature. These cowboys are people, not legends. The ranch that Minford and Judy managed was situated on almost 20,000 acres of arid country in Moffat County, Colorado, near the borders of Utah and Wyoming. The land is harsh, immense, and beautiful. It rises in great sandstone buttes 20 miles long and falls in windswept basins 100 miles across. Beginning at the age of eight, India, her siblings, and her mother would regularly make the nearly seven-hour drive from Colorado Springs to the ranch. They'd go up for weeks on end. The ranch that Minford and Judy ran was a refuge for me. It was like this other planet I could go to. It was hard to make phone calls up there. It was on a party line. Three ranches shared one phone. And so you'd get up there and you'd drive in about a mile and you'd come to kind of this rampart. And then it opened up into this big meadow where, you know, there'd be cattle and sheep grazing. Uh, there'd be all these birds. There'd be red-winged blackbirds calling down in the creek that ran along the road. You know, probably a hawk or two up in the sky. It was just this peaceful place. And Minford and Judy lived in a cabin that had been built in the 19th century. 
It was just a little place. And we'd get there, and Minford and Judy would come out in their matching shirts, give us a big hug. And they always wore this musky cologne that to this day, if I ever get wind of it, I just just makes me think of them. Um, they both wore the same cologne? Yes. Yeah. Minford and Judy can be seen in their matching shirts in the Bill Moyers documentary as they build a barbed wire fence. Minford, do you want this taken apart where you spliced it? No. No. I run it apart. Minford and his old white horse have taught me what I know. Minford taught me about work and Whitey taught me about punching cows. You're not going to use this bottom wire, eh? No, I'm not going to. For Young India, Judy was a complicated but intriguing role model. Judy, you know, like the ranch had its contradictions of being both beautiful and desolate and dry. Judy, on one hand, was this kind of frontier woman, but at the same time, she was an intense observer of nature. She knew the birds. She knew the animals that were around. She'd even, you know, name an elk that was a regular coming by the house. She had gotten to know what fossils were out there. And she wasn't a scientist. I don't think she'd ever been to college. But she knew that this was an ammonite. She'd show me an ammonite. This is a bellumite. So she, too, was kind of an amateur paleontologist, this rancher's wife. The only problem was Judy hated kids. She she thought most children were a pain and just saw no value in them. Uh, she thought every woman should be sterilized. So rather than entertain India and her sister Kate, Judy came up with chores to get them out of the house. Um, you know, Mom would come up there and just show up for a week in this tiny cabin. I mean, the cabin was only two bedrooms. I slept out on the porch. <laughs> and so... You know, we show up there for the first time, and I'm, I'm eight years old. She can't figure out what to do with this, so she says, there's 10 tons of rock salt that need unloading. Why don't you go help for two days? So she carts us out there in the truck, and we help the ranch hand unload 10 tons of rock salt. I mean, the sacks weighed more than we did. But despite the tension with Judy and the occasional bouts of hard labor, India grew to love it at the ranch. It was big, wild, and judging by the artifacts scattered around the cabin, full of natural treasures. I remember in their fireplace, there was a chunk of dinosaur bone, uh, about the size of a couple of bricks. And it was, you know, in the fireplace rocks. And there were other bits and pieces of fossils around the house. She had a whole pile of... um, you know, bits of dinosaur bone and gizzard stones outside the front door. So it was right there. It wasn't long before India, a naturally curious kid who describes herself as a squirrel, started begging Judy to show her how to hunt for dinosaur bones. Just a stone's throw from Dinosaur National Monument, the ranch is cut through by a towering hogback, part of what's known as the Morrison Formation, a layer of sedimentary rock dating back to the late Jurassic period. The exposed parts of the formation stretch throughout the Rocky Mountains and into the Dakotas. It's one of the richest and most accessible deposits of dinosaur bones in North America. Well, the Morrison, it was a a very, there was a lot of plant life. 
that supported a lot of dinosaurs. Because you have to start with the plants. This is Tyler Lyson, curator of paleontology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And on top of that, it was also a period of, of, of aridity, what we think was strong seasonality. So there was periods where it was very, very warm and wet and lush, supported all these plants, which supported all these big, big dinosaurs, which supported all the, of course, meat-eating dinosaurs. And then there were periods when it didn't rain so much and, and all the pools of water. You know, you think of like sub-Saharan Africa when, when during drought periods and when the rains do not come, all the animals congregate there. And that's why we get a lot of these very rich bone beds in the Morrison Formation. Minford and Judy's ranch couldn't have been better situated for bone hunting. Eventually, Judy agreed to take India and her sister out to search for fossils. By this time, India was 10 years old. She'd already learned to identify arrowheads and spiral-shelled ammonites in the rock near the cabin, but dinosaur bones were different. They'd have to go deeper into the property, past the Morrison Cliff, out into the desolate expanse. One day, while on their way back from one of their work excursions, Judy agreed to take them to a good spot. So she on the drive back to the ranch house, um, took us over to the Morrison Cliff. And we walked along there. And um, dinosaur bone looks different from everything else. It's got a grain to it like wood. Um, And oftentimes there's a surface to it, like a cow bone, you know, that's smooth. And then on the inside, there's that graininess like the inside of a steak bone. And most of the time, you only find little pieces that are the size of your fingertip. So Judy would show us a piece, and then Kate and I would hunt along and show her a rock, and she'd be like, that's a rock, you idiot. Um, (laughs) And we'd just keep asking her, and finally, you know, one of us would find a little piece. She'd be like, yeah, that's dinosaur bone. And we'd be totally stoked. It would be just a little piece the size of my little finger, but it was dinosaur bone. India was hooked. The next day, she went back out with a ranch hand to look for more. She'd found a new hobby, and Judy had found a way to get rid of the kids for hours on end. After that trip in 1975, India and her family didn't return to the ranch for several years. Her mom was broke. She could barely afford groceries, never mind the budget vacations to friends' homes around the Southwest. India took up fossil hunting around the public golf course near her house. She found trilobites and other ocean fossils, but longed to hunt dinosaur bones back at the ranch. Then, in 1978, things changed. Her mom remarried a man named John Brittingham, a wealthy Yale-educated rancher who owned land and livestock near Colorado Springs. He also had a small plane and would fly the family to visit Minford and Judy on breaks. When they weren't helping out with backbreaking chores dreamed up by Judy, India and her older sister Kate would go out looking for more dinosaur bones. India remembers the day she made her first big find. You know, as usual, I had my jeans pockets full of rocks that I'd picked up. But the problem when you're, you know, 12 years old is that your pants fall off. (laughs) You know, your pockets get so full of rocks that, you know, my jeans would almost be down around my knees. (laughs) So there I am waddling up this little ravine, trying to walk, and finding, you know, all sorts of cool stuff, pieces of agate, bits of uh, petrified wood. And I look up just, just about shoulder level in the side of this ravine. And it looks like a little log is sticking out. And I back up and look at it. I'm like, oh, my God. It looked like dinosaur bone. You know, I 
probably yelled something like, holy <laughs> and my mom came over and Judy confirmed, yeah, that's dinosaur bone. And it's not just a little piece. It's a, you know, a bone that goes back. With help from Minford and a pickaxe, India pried the bone from the sandstone. And sure enough, in this huge block is this beautiful piece of dinosaur bone that's about two and a half feet long. So that was my first find. You know, I brought it home and put it with the rest of my natural history collection. You know, arrowheads and ammonites and buffalo bones. But the dinosaur thing was was really neat. I mean, that was that was different. None of my friends had dinosaur bones in their bedrooms, so. Uh, and mom thought it was pretty good too. Marjorie Agu Iriff met India around this time, and the two became fast friends. So India and I were both nerds. We were both. <laughs> female nerds, um, and this was in the late 70s, early 80s, and um, and we both enjoyed science. We both were kind of more into getting dirty and digging around in things, um, unlike a lot of the other girls that were getting into Madonna and pink fluffy stuff. Marjorie remembers India's bedroom as a kind of cabinet of curiosities. She had all sorts of weird cardboard boxes in her room, under her bed, on shelves of just stuff. Um, you know, dead animal parts, um, feathers from uh, birds, um, and then dinosaur bones. And she would catalog them and label things. Um, and it was sort of her hobby. India tried to identify the bones she'd found back at the ranch, but no luck. Nevertheless, she couldn't wait to get back out to the site to see if there was more where that came from. I think it's a little bit like Las Vegas or something. You know, you, you put a nickel in the slot and you get a hundred bucks back. You're going to put some more nickels in. Six months later, she had her chance. India, her mom, her new stepdad, John, and her sister, Kate, piled into John's Beechcraft Bonanza and flew back to the ranch. After a few days of obligatory chores, she convinced one of the ranch hands, Kenny, to take her and Kate back to the spot where she'd found the big bone. As they ventured out into the craggy terrain, India lagged behind Kate and Kenny taking time to inspect every interesting rock she saw. Eventually, she looked up and realized she was alone. So, you know, Kate and Kenny were were out of sight, which made me feel kind of anxious because I was just 12 years old in this huge landscape. The wind's howling. The two people I'm with are gone. It's like I've been abandoned on the moon or something. But I still can't resist looking for bone. And so I see this little piece sticking out of the hillside at an odd angle, you know, like somebody had stuck a branch in the ground. And it's just this little thumb-sized piece. So I get down on my knees and start digging. And I assumed it was just going to be maybe a few inches long. But it kept going back. And I think I had maybe a screwdriver or an ice pick that Judy had loaned me for digging. And so I keep digging back, and there's... The bone just keeps going. And Kate and Kenny appear, and Kate's like, why are you digging on that? It's all weathered. And I'm like, no, this one goes back, and the rock's really soft. It's easy to dig here. Kate and Kenny helped her chip away at the dirt and rock, slowly revealing the bone. The whole thing is the size of a turkey platter, and with these really cool marks on it, almost like one of those relief maps of Colorado with the mountains on it. This platter-shaped bone had these funky ridges and bumps on it, which I would later discover, realize were um, 
where the muscles and tendons had attached to the dinosaur's pelvis. Even at 12 years old, India realized she had come across something significant. If nothing else, it was a big and largely intact dinosaur bone. And unlike the last bone she'd found, it had been relatively easy to excavate. Not surprisingly, she wanted to bring it home. So I'm all excited that night at dinner. I'm like, you know, look, we've, we've got this huge dinosaur bone. It's there on the hillside. It's really easy to dig out. I'll have it in a box and we can take it home with us tomorrow. And John just looks at me and he says, well, how much does it weigh? And I'm like, well, I don't know, probably 80 pounds. And John just says, no, you can't bring it. The bone would be too heavy to bring back on John's little Beechcraft airplane. And I had spent all day trying to epoxy the thing together out on the hillside. <laughs> so we leave it there. And so for about six months, you know, in the back of my mind is this thought, oh my God, you know, somebody else is going to find it and take it away. This marvelous bone. There was nothing she could do but throw a tarp over it and hope that no other fossil hunters would stumble across it. Another anxious six months passed before India could go back. This is Wish We Were Here. Stay with us. From KRCC in Colorado Springs, this is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadows of America's mountain. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. On this episode, we're telling the story of India Wood's discovery and excavation of a remarkably well-preserved Allosaurus skeleton when she was only 12 years old. Now 13, India returned to Minford and Judy's ranch in northwest Colorado at the end of the summer of 1979 with her sister Kate. She'd come for the dinosaur bone she'd excavated, which she'd had to leave under a tarp the previous spring. The bone was too heavy to move by herself, so India enlisted her sister's help. We got the, this big bone out in big chunks, put it in a backpack, weighed a ton. And we're doing this, and I look over, and a rock that I had used as a stool a couple times, I look a little closer at it, and it's bone. And it's a, a vertebra. It's shaped like a big spool. It's about, oh, maybe a less, little less than a foot in diameter. And so Kate and I dig that out. And Kate points over further to the right. And there's this baseball bat-shaped bone, just barely on the surface, mostly covered. Dig that one out. By the end of that trip, they dug up three bones. As far as India was concerned, she'd hit the fossil jackpot. But what was this dinosaur she'd discovered? This time, India took the bones with her back to Colorado Springs. It was time to get serious about paleontology. I had some dinosaur books growing up. And it was really funny because I had one dinosaur book that was called To Find a Dinosaur. And it was completely useless. It had nothing in it about how to dig up a dinosaur. It was for kids. But I guess the author never imagined that a kid would actually find a dinosaur and need to know how to dig one up. India went to the local library. They had great paleontology reference books, 
but she couldn't check them out. So I had the books I needed at the library, but the dinosaur bones were at home, and I couldn't bring the dinosaur bones to the library or the library book to the dinosaur bones. And so I asked my junior high school science teacher, Mr. Sweat, at North Junior High, and he had, I think it was Osteology of the Reptiles, and he usually never let a book out of his room, but he let it out of his room for me. She brought the book back to her bedroom. You know, here I had this bone on my desk that was 30 inches long, and the diagrams in the book were an inch long. So it was really hard to figure it out. I had originally thought it was a uh, shoulder blade because it was kind of shaped like a human scapula. Um, but then in going through the book, I saw this picture of an Allosaurus pelvis. And no question it was that bone. The ilium bone, to be precise. She double-checked a few other bones she'd found against the diagrams in the book. They all matched up. This was her dinosaur, the Allosaurus, 150 million years old. In its day, the late Jurassic period, it was at the top of the food chain, preying on large herbivores like the Stegosaurus and Sauropod. She immersed herself in research and learned everything she could about the Allosaurus. Her friend Marjorie remembers India during that time. <laughs> she was not um, the typical student who just depended on teachers to teach her. She was teaching herself. She was constantly um, focusing on a particular topic and doing as much research as she could into that topic. And she 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 knew, um, you know, all of the different periods of time, you know, and she could quickly tell somebody, um, you know, well, these were the animals that were walking the earth at this point in time or that point in time, and these ones were, you know, extinct at that point. Over the next few years, as she worked her way through middle school, India returned to the ranch every six months or so. With each visit to her Allosaurus site, she grew more confident in her ability to remove and preserve the bones she found, and more aware of the mistakes she'd made on previous trips. You know, at age 12, you're like, man, I want the big bones, baby. Any of the little stuff, I'd throw it down the hill. <laughs> By the time I was about 14, you know, a couple years into the dig on my own, I began to realize, India, you, you are an idiot. You have been an incompetent fool. And you have tossed a lot of dinosaur down this hill. So it was kind of horrifying. Um, looking back and even, again, a couple years into the dig to realize that I was really woefully unqualified. But I resolved, hey, I'll get better at this, and I became much more meticulous about saving every piece um, and gluing things together much more carefully using Elmer's glue. India's bedroom in Colorado Springs was beginning to overflow with bones. She had bones on her desk, bones in cardboard boxes under her bed. There was dirt from the Morrison Formation ground into her carpet. The Allosaurus was taking over. But aside from the mess, no one in her life seemed to think it was all that peculiar, her mother least of all. Nobody was paying any attention. My mother um, was an incredibly talented writer and photographer, um, but she was very laissez-faire in her child-rearing practices. Um, by the time I turned 14, Kate was off to college, and my mother would give me $50 every Monday, and she would disappear off to write her books. And she'd come back, you know, maybe the next Sunday. 
So I was by myself uh, at our house from about age 14 to 18. Uh, so there really was nobody to say, hey, wait, or what are you doing? <laughs> I did whatever I pleased. And what she pleased was to keep digging up the dinosaur. She continued to learn new techniques, like how to make something called a plaster field jacket, a kind of plaster cocoon to keep the bones safe during transport. She got better at reconstructing bone fragments using glue and epoxy. Just 14 years old, she was now presiding over her own private, semi-professional dig site. And as she spent more time with the bones, she grew attached to the 150-million-year-old Allosaurus. Though she didn't know the gender, she named it Alice after the woman in the song Willin' by Little Feet. I've been warped by the rain, driven by the snow, I'm drunk and dirty, don't you know, and I'm still willing. And I was out on the road, late at night, I seen my pretty Alice in every headlight, Alice, Dallas, Alice. But the relationship that India developed with Alice also came with loneliness and doubt. While her friend Marjorie and her science teacher, Mr. Sweat, might have thought it was cool, a bedroom full of dinosaur bones didn't exactly make her popular. You know, I, I so wanted to be, you know, to be, have a nice normal name like Sarah and have, you know, feathered hair and have guys think I was hot. But I was flat chested. I wore jeans. I never wore a dress. I wore no makeup and had a thing for dinosaurs. <sighs> And it was really frustrating because I was so lonely. There I was at my house five days a week all by myself. So I was really lonely. Nevertheless, she kept digging. By the time she was 15, she'd excavated and reconstructed 18 bones from the site. She'd also come to learn that the Allosaurus was a relatively common dinosaur in the late Jurassic period, and that Allosaurus bones had been found all over the West. While she was still passionate about her find, she was unsure if real paleontologists would be all that interested. That is, until she found the skull. I remember it was, for some reason I was digging in January up there. I was 15 and a half, digging up there by myself. And I come across this bone that looks like a trailer hitch. You know, it's this big ball, it's got a big ball on the end. But it didn't look like a leg bone or anything. There was all this other complicated bone around it. And I'm like, uh, maybe this is part of the skull. The discovery of a dinosaur skull is always significant because they're much more fragile than other bones and rarely survive the fossilization process. And when they are found, excavation can be precarious. India knew she might be in over her head. The thought strongly occurs to me that I am completely unqualified to be doing what I have been doing for three years. <laughs> Around that same time, my mother um, concluded that a 15-year-old girl's bedroom should not look like a rock quarry. And she's like, you have to get rid of these bones. India decided it was time to take a shoebox full of Alice's bones to the Denver Museum of Natural History for an expert opinion. If the bones were good, maybe the museum would take them. It was a Friday afternoon. Go in the front door to the museum. There's somebody at the front desk. 
and I hand her this box and I write out in a little form my name and phone number and, you know, please confirm these are Allosaurus bones. And I didn't expect anything further than that, that they would just say, yeah, these are Allosaurus bones. They're really common, kid. See you later. Monday rolled around, you know, got back from school at like 5.30. The phone rings. And <laughs> this, this guy is on the phone and he sounds like kind of like an elf who's had 10 cups of coffee. I mean, he was just sort of bouncing off the walls and sounded really bubbly and happy, but with this sort of eastern Colorado Plains twang. And he's like, you know, this is, this is Don Lindsay. And I'm like, Don Lindsay? Yeah, calling you from the Dare Museum of Natural History. And he was beside himself with joy, and he said, you know, where did you get these bones? I said, well, I found them on a friend's ranch. I said, wow, I'd, I'd really like to see the site because these are really unusual in that they're so well-preserved. And he asked me, you know, who dug them up? And I said, well, I did. He said, oh, he said, are you a graduate student? I said, no. He said, well, how old are you? And I said, I'm 15. Don Lindsay was a paleontologist at the Denver Museum of Natural History. He'd been with them for about a decade at the time, and had been on digs all around Colorado. He was on the lookout for a new site. Then he asked me how many bones I had. And I kind of hesitated, because, you know, somebody just calls you up out of the blue. You don't exactly want to tell me you've got you know, part of an Allosaurus in your bedroom. But I was like, you know, what do I have to lose? So I told him, yeah, there's 18 bones in my, my bedroom. And... He was very excited and said, well, let's, let's see if we can go up to uh, this ranch and you can show me the site and maybe we want to dig it up. They arranged to meet in Denver and drive together to the ranch. India was thrilled. In the last year, her family life had imploded. Her mom and stepdad had separated, meaning India could no longer count on John Brittingham for the financial and emotional support that her mother often couldn't provide. Her father had also split with his wife, Penny, whom India adored. India was attending Fountain Valley, a private prep school in Colorado Springs, but she knew her mom and dad could never afford the tuition alone. Suddenly, with Don Lindsay's call, came a whole new set of possibilities. And I was shocked. Uh, I had not expected that kind of phone call. Maybe in the back of my mind, I'd hoped for it. Some sort of transformation out of the kind of little hellhole I was in personally at that point. When India finally met Don Lindsay face-to-face, she was surprised to find that he wasn't the rugged, sexy, sun-kissed paleontologist she envisioned. He looked like an Irish gnome. He had this big, bushy beard and kind of long, curly hair, and he always wore like a baseball cap or this big cowboy hat on top of his hair, So it sort of looked like there was this curly, live animal on top of his head that jiggled perpetually. But she was impressed. Here was a real, live paleontologist. So we went up there, and Don was really pleased with the site because it was a nice, gentle slope. The rock was soft. You could drive up to it. It was perfect. 
And there was more bone there. And I showed him what I thought was part of the skull. He agreed it was. Um, and there were, you know, other bones there that I had not taken out. And, you know, he just sort of pats me on the head. Says, well, this is great. And we'll have a field crew come up here and dig it up. But India wasn't about to simply turn over her dig site. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I am not giving up this dinosaur. I'm not just going to walk away. And so I said to Don, I want a summer job. I want to help you dig it up. And you just told me what a good job I'd done on these other bones. And he hemmed and hawed and explained how his son, who was my age, was already on the field crew and they couldn't afford to hire another person. And he went on and on. I'm like, well, you want my bones, you give me a job. Her gambit worked. So... A couple weeks later, I, I got a letter that was a job offer. And I think Don was really surprised. I think he'd expected me to be, you know, just some quiet little girl. He definitely got more than he bargained for. <laughs> India Wood, 15-year-old paleontology nerd, had managed to secure herself a dream job. This is Wish We Were Here. Stay with us. Welcome back to Wish We Were Here, Tales and Investigations from the Shadows of America's Mountain. I'm Noel Black. And I'm Jake Brownell. On this episode of Wish We Were Here, we're telling the story of India Wood and a dinosaur skeleton she discovered when she was 12 years old. At the age of 15, Wood turned her discovery over to the Denver Museum of Natural History. When paleontologist Don Lindsay confirmed the significance of Wood's find, she talked him into giving her a summer job finishing the excavation she started. When they got to the ranch, India got set up in a little bunkhouse behind Judy and Minford's cabin. Don and his son Jim, who was just a year older than India, would be staying in a rundown trailer nearby. On the first day of the dig, they made plans to get started at the dig site bright and early to avoid the dry summer heat, but when the time came, there was no sign of Don. It would be hours before he finally emerged from the trailer, hungover. He's hunched over and he needs a drink. And I didn't realize this initially. Initially, I thought, man, I have won the lottery. We've got this fantastic scientist that I'm going to work with for the summer. And he was a great scientist. He knew paleontology really well. He was great at field excavation. He was one talented human being with one bad alcohol problem, unfortunately. The good news was that Don's son Jim was, himself, a talented excavator and amateur paleontologist like India. When Don and I had first gone up to the site. You know, Don had mentioned that he had a son named Jim and that he was close to my age. And I didn't really think about it much until um, they showed up. And I'm like, huh, I thought this was going to be kind of a lonely summer, but at least I'll have somebody my age to talk to. In many ways, says India, she and Jim did the lion's share of the digging that summer. Don, often hungover, wouldn't show up to the site until late and often begged off early. Making matters worse, India had become something of a media sensation. For the Denver Museum of Natural History, the story of a young girl finding an Allosaurus fossil was irresistible. 
Much to Don Lindsay's displeasure, they sent camera crews to the site to interview India and Don for publicity. You know, my dad was more scientific rather than the commercial part of dinosaurs and that. This is Jim Lindsay, Don Lindsay's son. But the museum, of course, is a business and, you know, is based on trustees and donations and things. So it was a, it was um, publicly a good thing to have Indian involved in the dig for the museum. Um, where my father was more concerned about the quality of the dig and, you know, losing aspect of maybe the scientific part. Here's an excerpt from an unedited video of Don Lindsay at the dig site, doing his best to be gracious with the film crew. Ask me the question. Don, would you mind going through the procedure for extracting bones once you've located a specimen? Not at all, Stephanie. As you can see here, we try to dig down on top of the bone as much as possible. In this For his part, Jim wasn't too pleased about all the publicity point, either. When the camera crews come out and the interviewing and all that, I didn't enjoy that, so that, that kind of got in the way for me personally. I don't know. It's a different culture when the, when the crews show up and they do interviews and all that, and, you know, we got to do certain things to the bones and make them wet and shiny for filming and interviewing, and then, you know, I'm working there all summer long, and then it's like, well, they show up, and it's like, hey, can you get out of the way and just stand back so we can do filming? The museum wanted to make good use of me, and I didn't mind it. I felt like I owed them. But it made Don really mad. You know, he'd like kind of schemed to have us not be there if the film crew was coming. Um, he would uh, run the jackhammer in the background when they were trying to film. You know, he just, he just thought it was all wrong, that it wasn't going to be pure science. Okay, what do we have illustrated here? And we'll see if we can take a look with you. Kill this right here is part of the pelvic girdle. It's... Half of it with part of it missing right there. Basically intact, though. Um, this is part of the skull. There were also major problems that summer. Clouds of biting gnats made it almost impossible to dig during the day. And then, after heavy rains, the site flooded. But natural annoyances aside, they did manage to excavate more than half the site that summer. And for the most part, Don, Jim, and India enjoyed one another's company. Probably two or three nights a week, probably on the weekends, um, I would walk down to the trailer where Jim and Don lived. It was this old pink metal-sided trailer uh, with two bedrooms, um, pretty run down, so they stayed down there. Uh, and we would have campfires in the evenings outside the trailer. I ate most of my meals with them. I think I ended up being the cook. Um, but we'd sit around this campfire with this wonderful smell of juniper tree branches uh, burning, you know, the embers going up into the night sky. And the sky there is so black. The Milky Way is just this bright stripe running across the sky. And we would sit there and we'd drink a lot of beer and look up at the sky and ponder our place in the universe. It was really cool. They left the site in September. India and Jim returned to school, Don to the museum. There was still work to be done at the site, but it would have to wait until the following summer. But by the end of the next school year, she had some reservations about spending another summer at the ranch in northwestern Colorado. 
that second summer, I was like, God, this is going to be so lonely. I don't have a boyfriend. I'm not going to see anybody up there. And I was 17. You know, what 17-year-old wants to go spend the summer sitting on a pile of rocks, basically? I, I thought it was a lot of fun. But again, that ambivalence of, man, the science is amazing. Um, the discovery is fantastic. But I am so lonely. Still, she felt like she'd come too far to give up on Alice. And she wouldn't be totally alone. Don's son Jim would be there again. Jim and I were good friends from the start, you know, and we were, you know, in league with each other to deal with his dad, you know, to get the dinosaur dug up despite Don's limitations. Um, and we'd sit around, we'd sit around the campfire and talk till two or three in the morning. And one evening, you know, we both had a look in our eyes and, uh, I guess just, <laughs> hey, you're 17 years old, man. <laughs> in some ways, working together day in and day out would seem to make it inevitable. As far as a, as a, as a, a relationship goes, um, great relationship. Um, the way we got along again, because we, we had the same, the same likes and different than the other, other kids and such. I was so excited about Jim Lindsay. I wrote my journal that I wanted to marry him. <laughs> you know, I was, I was completely smitten. For India, everything she'd been working toward and hoping for seemed to converge that summer at the ranch. It was a refuge and a place where she found everything that seemed so elusive in her ordinary life at home. Romance, adventure, and a sense of belonging in the world. I think being up there was kind of a divine existence in terms of that here I was in the spot on the earth that was so freaking special that that ground had a dinosaur in it that was 145 million years old and that I'd stumbled across it, this human being, that, that I could be in this place that was so separate from the rest of the world, you know, with Jim and Don, with whom I shared all these interests in nature, and then with Minford and Judy, so it was this microcosm. It was like being inside of Fabergé egg. At least my kind of Fabergé egg. There were no jewels. <laughs> and no rich people. But it was this little world. Though the affair with Jim didn't last long, it was just what India had needed. I mean, even though it was only two weeks, I think it really changed my life. Because... What had happened with my parents breaking up uh, a year and a half before that, I had really withdrawn emotionally from, from the world. And I think it really opened me up to, um, to other people more. As the summer wound down, so did the dig. They removed all the most accessible bones and sent them back to the museum in Denver. 
Don decided that he wouldn't return to the site for further excavation. Whatever was left of Alice in that hillside would remain there. India's senior year in high school was a whirlwind. She was written up in People magazine and got into several Ivy League colleges on the strength of her Allosaurus research and her grades. But with the dig over, she also felt like she was beginning to lose her connection to Alice. We had a week off in October, and I asked the museum if I could come work up here. So I came up, and I'd expected to work on preparing the Allosaurus bones, but Don wouldn't let me. Don was like, nope, that's Jim's job. You're not going to take his job. And at that point, he was really kind of actively fencing me out of the Allosaurus world for whatever reason. Unbeknownst to India, Don himself was about to get pushed out of the museum. The board of directors had lost interest in paleontology and wanted to focus the museum's efforts elsewhere. Here's Jim Lindsay again. I mean, they closed a whole paleontology department and everything. There was nobody, nobody working that department for a while. And my dad, my dad did not take that well. Um, did not sit well with my father. It was the end of an era. Though Don went on to work on various digs for the government and private companies, Jim left paleontology altogether and ultimately found work in the telecom industry. For her part, India continued on in paleontology for a while. She went to Dartmouth, took science classes, and even got a grant to return to the dig site for another summer after her freshman year. She loved the work but couldn't shake the feeling of loneliness in the field. The brief affair she'd had with Jim that summer and the few boyfriends she'd had since made it clear that she didn't want to keep living a life alone. I realized how important it was for me to have a connection like that with another human being and that I was not willing to commit to a career where I would be gone from the person I loved for weeks or months at a time. Then, in 1986, she went back to visit the Denver Museum of Natural History. She toured the back room and saw what had become of the paleontology department. Alice's bones had been left to gather dust. All of India's doubts about the profession came to a head. So Alice was done and I couldn't do anything about it. I mean, I remember seeing it piled in this closet and I was heartbroken. And I mean, there was the Alice It was just like, somebody just like didn't give a shit and it piled it there and that was part of why I thought, you know, I'm done. Uh, she's never going to go on display. I need to do something else with my life anyway. India closed the book on Alice and moved on. So, Alice is in the closet. I graduate from college fall in love with one of my classmates at Dartmouth that I'd actually met in evolution class. Um, he was a very good friend of mine, um, and we began to date my senior year, Paul Mandel, who's now my husband. Ten years passed. India worked for a few years in the publishing industry, traveled extensively, got an MBA. She married Paul, and they settled down in Boston. And then one day, while she was pregnant with her first child, she got a call out of the blue from a man named Richard Stuckey, he was the new curator of paleontology at the Denver Museum of Natural History. So there I am, sitting there. I think I was very pregnant, and the phone rings, and the cat's in my lap. You know, I'm, we're living in an apartment in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I hadn't really thought about the dinosaur in a long time, and Richard calls me up and he says, Hey, you know, 
your Allosaurus is complete. And I'm like, what? He said, yeah, we've, we've cast all the missing bones, uh, and we're starting to mount her, and she's going to be on display uh, in our new paleontology hall that opens next year. And I was like, what? Yeah, when I came in in 1989, um, you know, there had been some economic problems with uh, uh, the museum. Uh, the collections, though, were in uh, not too good a shape. Things hadn't been taken care of. This is Richard Stuckey. When he was hired in 1989, he was charged with revitalizing the entire paleontology department of the museum, which had recently begun to receive funding from a voter-approved tax in Denver. He planned to build a new fossil hall at the museum that would eventually be called Prehistoric Journey. When he came across India's Allosaurus in the dusty cabinets of the bone room, he was stunned. Um, in my opinion, it is in the top 1% of the best preserved dinosaur specimens that's ever been discovered. Not in terms of its completeness, but rather in how well preserved the bones were. The bones look like they came from an animal that died yesterday. He wanted to make Alice the centerpiece of the new dinosaur hall, and he wanted India's story to be part of it. You know, the thing that, that really stands out in her story is her dedication to uh, finding those specimens, you know, preparing those specimens, and then getting in contact with the museum and working with the museum to, to get them into the collections. Stuckey and his team had been working on putting Alice together for the past several years. When India got the call, Alice's display was almost complete. They invited her out to see it before the exhibit opened. Yeah, I mean, I remember walking in and the display wasn't finished yet. There was just, you know, the Allosaurus and the concrete floor. There were no... Um, interpretive panels and no lighting. There were just floodlights and stuff. Um, and there were plastic tarps on things. And, um, so it was kind of like seeing a ghost. You know, it, it, but it was weird because she was complete. Whereas up to that point, I had only known her in pieces. Was it emotional for you at all? No, it was kind of clinical. In a way. Because, yeah, it was Alice, but I kind of felt like not really Alice. It was like she'd been taxidermied. You know? And I had too personal a relationship with those bones. You know, here she was stuffed and mounted. I didn't really feel her soul in there. To me, she... I think of her as still up there in that hillside. But at the same time, I mean, I felt elated because finally here was this dinosaur that I had found on display where kids would see her, which was my, you know, which was my dream once the museum got involved. So it, yeah, I felt immense pride and um, joy. Uh, it was almost like having a child.
that's the woman that found it? Yeah. What is she doing now? Because we wondered if she if, if She's she got not a paleontologist. Yeah, I looked her up. I Googled her and couldn't find her anywhere. People yeah, are often disappointed uh, when they find out that India Wood didn't become a paleontologist. It's the Hollywood ending to what seemed, even to India, like destiny or fate. Here's India detailing the perhaps less glamorous reality for a couple docents at what is now called the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. And what did you grow up to do? Um, I uh, got my business degree from MIT. So I majored in English literature in college, got my MBA at MIT, and then founded uh, my own um, business research firm. And so these you know, being I up and talking to the uh, the volunteers up in the Paleo Hall today, uh, I had a moment that I've had probably hundreds of, which is I tell my story, and then the person asks me, what do you do today? And they completely lose interest when they realize I'm not a paleontologist. Because that's the ending they want. They want me to say, I'm working at the American Museum of Natural History, you know, I'm going to Africa next week, you know, whatever it is, they want that ending of, yep, India became a paleontologist, because that's what you expect. India still has the occasional pang of regret that she didn't become a paleontologist. But, she says, she got so much of what she'd always wanted. Not just Alice, but a husband, two kids, and the time to spend with them. And in the end, for India, Digging up Alice wasn't about becoming a paleontologist. It was about finding herself, who she was. It was who I was. I mean, I was a very in, inquisitive, determined pain in the ass. <laughs> you know, I, the dinosaur was a perfect fit for me growing up. I don't know what I would have done otherwise. Kids need adventures. Everybody needs adventures. And I was lucky enough to hook into one that lasted several years. But most kids, they don't have, they don't have a mother who drags them off to some godforsaken ranch and says, oh, go hunt dinosaur bones or whatever, I'll see you in three days. You know? Um, yeah, we need to figure out a way for more kids to, to just be dumped off in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC Public Radio in Colorado Springs. All the music in this episode was composed by Kelly Palmblad. Many thanks to our interns, Abigail Sensky and Amy Ron, and to our production assistant, Amelia Whitmer. Thanks to KRCC Programming Director Jeff Beery and General Manager Tammy Turwelp. Thanks also to the staff of the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and to India Wood, who's working on a memoir about her experience growing up with Alice the Allosaurus. To see pictures and hear this again, head over to krcc.org or look up our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. For Wish We Were Here, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black.